Okay. Let's see what we can do here. We're going to be uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper or communion today. Um, because, you know, we're really allowed to anytime we want to. It doesn't have to be on the first Sunday of the month. Um, if you, it turns out, if you read the Bible, it turns out. So uh, I'm going to be preaching on the section of Mark today where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, so that's why we're doing it today. How about that? Okay, so if you have a Bible, and you do because there's one in the pew right in front of you, go ahead and turn it to chapter 14, verse 20. Uh, if you uh, need the page number, it's 1578. Actually, 79, 1579. <clears throat> I'm going to read verses 22 to 26. 22 to 26 in chapter 14 of Mark's gospel. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood. Of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. That's it. That's all Mark says about it. I'm going to be real upfront with you, okay? I am not going to talk about communion controversies, okay? not going to do it. I, I can hardly even make sense of them myself. Most of them are philosophically so metaphysical that I'm not sure that the people who propound them understand them, and so I'm not going to confuse the issue by getting very deeply into that, okay? I'm just going to start with the premise that Jesus instituted a ritual we call the Lord's Supper Communion, in which we take bread and, well, supposed to take wine, but we do juice because, you know, it's better for some reason. And um, we eat it and we drink it in remembrance of Jesus' death on our behalf, and we do, we're, we're going to be doing it until he comes, right? Um, and I'm just going to, we're going to go from there, okay? <clears throat> so let me start with this question. Should people live in the past, the present, or the future? Right? Yes, right? Um, the, the problem is, is most people don't live in proper relationship to the past, the present, and the future. Do they? But if you ask somebody that question, you make them answer it, and the answer can't be yes, you have to actually pick one of the options. Um, most people know immediately it can't be which option. The past, right? Most people immediately know it's not supposed to be the past. Every once in a while, you'll get a widow or a scholar living in the past, really, and... Um, but most people know that it's, it's pretty dysfunctional. Um, it, you don't, you're not really embracing the present at all, and it's as though the future doesn't exist. And it, it, there's just—but but here's the thing about it. it. For some people, if they like their past, then it's really comfortable, isn't it? To keep remembering back and thinking about how the old days were. Um, it looks really funny to the rest of us. You look like that, you know, washed up quarterback guy in Napoleon Dynamite. But you, d you don't. But for them, in their own psychology, it's really comfortable, isn't it? And there's a, and there's a lot of us who functionally do that. 
um, probably more commonly is <clears throat> people who don't think they are, but they really are just living in the future, in that they're living for the future. Um, I, particularly now where um, school goes on till people are like in their 30s, like you can be a professional student, you can like retire from school and pay your student loans with your social security check, you know? Um, the, the problem with that is, is that the future is a really tricky animal because it's not, it, it flows, it's, it's not solid. It's full of possibilities. There's all these possible futures out there, some of them agreeable, some of them not agreeable. And when we live in the future, not only do we not live right now, which is bad enough, um, but we are affected by all the possible futures. So the set of futures that are disagreeable create anxiety, even though they can't all happen, right? But you can have two different futures that couldn't both happen, but both could happen on their own, and you'll be equally anxious about them both. And so you can actually experience an exponential amount of anxiety, most of which couldn't possibly happen logically, but yet it'll all come down on your shoulders. Meanwhile, you've got this other set of possible futures that are agreeable, none of which can all happen. You know, one, of, one can happen, but they can't all happen, right? And so that just builds up all kinds of anxiety for the future when you're disappointed because they don't happen. So you're caught on two horns. You feel all this anxiety for all these possible futures that could happen that won't, that's completely unnecessary, and that you set up all kinds of unnecessary disappointment for yourself in the future because you're hoping in futures that could never happen. And the bigger, here's, here's the, the greater danger here. In order to get certain futures to happen so you're not disappointed, or to make sure certain negative futures don't happen so you don't have to feel anxious, it's not uncommon to morally sell out the present for future possibility. So that we won't do our duty or love our neighbor or live the way we know Jesus wants us to in the present because we're trying to manage the future that we can't control and most of which can't happen anyway. But it's really easy to live for the future. But here's the, here's the, the third problem. Um, <clears throat> the whole phrase living in the present has been just totally gutted of its meaning, of its proper meaning, hasn't it? When people these days say that, they're, that, that they are living the virtue of living in the present, they usually don't mean the real virtue of living in the present, do they? What they mean is they're trying to live without reference to their past, without a care for the future, doing whatever they want in the present. It's not connected to anything really solid, and so they're living in the present, but they end up being a— they end up inflicting a lot of pain on themselves, and they become a, a dreadful trial to others because there is no ruling center of how they're living in the present because there's no values coming from their past and hopeful future. So because the present that they're living in isn't united in a unity of past, present, and future, who they are, 
who they've been made, who they are in the present, and what they hope to be in the future. And because those aren't connected to each other, their present isn't going anywhere. It's not linked to anything, and it just goes whichever way their whims take them. And so they end up not living a very authentic existence, but they, they end up being a slave to whims and fashion and sentiment, which I think is worse than being a slave to things like family, commitment, and hope. And I say that because I spent some years in that um, practically. I never said that because it always sounded shallow to me, but I did it, and it was shallow. The virtue of living in the present is having a right understanding of the past and how it's formed you and what your roots are and what you've become, either in disconnection with your past that you're trying to get over, or in unity with your past, which are your good roots, that have brought you into a specific present— that's connection, connected with who you are and who you really think God wants you to become. Not necessarily what you think you ought to achieve, but the sort of person you think God wants you to become in the future. The only thing you have any control over, for the most part, and that there's a trajectory that you're living the present on that line of trajectory so you know exactly how to live in the present so you can live in the present. Otherwise, you never can One of the most fundamental human needs is for there to be flow between the experience of our past, what we're doing in the present, and what we're hoping to see or experience in the future. For any human being to live in the present really, to be situated in the midst of real values that are on a trajectory that they know that they're on, so they they know what their identity is, they know who they were made to be, they know who they want to become, and they know based on their past who they are and who they aren't, those people can live authentically in the present. They cannot be hag-ridden by anxiety or disappointment in the future, and they can, to some extent, differentiate with their past and embrace what they should and begin to reject what they should. But that only happens if there's this flow, if there's a past, present, and future. Now, here's the problem with that. Most of us have really fragmented experiences of past, present, and future. Our past, we're functioning off of memory. Memory can be really bad. Um, And memory is also connected with what we want. And so oftentimes, our memory tends to gravitate towards groups of memories that help substantiate what we're doing now. (laughs) I mean, most of our memories are self-designed within our own psychology to, to make sure that we feel good about who we are and what we're doing in the present. You know, and, and dang, you know, forget the truth, <laughs> you know, whatever we need to believe about how we were hurt or what happened to us or what led us to this so that it's okay we're doing this now is how, unless we get in there and effect how we're going to remember things, and, and let, let our values and what we believe help us choose and make sure we remember important things we need to remember, we will forget them. And what will rise is what our inner needy selves want us to remember so we can be whatever we want to be in the present. And so we're free to do whatever we're going to want to do in the future. That's how human sinfulness and selfishness works. 
And so not only do some of us have really fragmented pasts and all kinds of dysfunction, all those sorts of things, but our memories fragmented up and self-select in ways that our memory oftentimes isn't very good and isn't very helpful. And then in the present, <clears throat> if we don't, if we're not linked to something that defines it, we're all over the place. And the future is unfixed. It moves. It's like, it's kind of like dry, trying to drive somewhere, not having a GPS in the present, being already lost from making a bad turn in the past, and there being fog in front of you so you can only see 100 feet in front of your car. How the heck are you going to find where you're going? You see the problem? What we need to be authentic human beings, to live out the life God wants us to live, to be happy, to have whatever wholeness is, is flow. And we've got anything but flow. <clears throat> and that is exactly the problem that I believe Jesus was intending to solve with the three feasts he created in the story of redemption. That God gave to humanity three feasts that represented three promised covenants. That is, that is totally indissoluble promises that you can absolutely count on. Sworn unions in such a way that it can situate our past, present, and future in a bigger story so our littler stories can come up under it and find some order so we can become as whole as possible when we're rightly connected to God's greater story. That's how it works. And so when you come to Mark 14, in a couple of verses, Jesus is, is putting you into his larger story of three feasts, okay? Right? What are they celebrating in the chapter, right? They're celebrating the Passover, right? That's the historical feast. That's the beginning of the ordered nature of God's redemption with humanity. It is how he started things out and how he starts framing things up. Okay, let me see if I could do something here. So the Passover is how God begins to talk about salvation. It's how he saves the Jews from slavery, how he forms a people for themselves, how he promises them a promised land, and he sets up, he frames how everything's going to go so it can be filled in more later and filled in more forever, okay? Then in the passage, he's instituting what we call the Lord's Supper or communion, which is the participation in the fulfillment of the Passover covenant. That what Passover pointed to, freedom from slavery, a formation of God's people into a victorious life that ends up in a promised end that he wants to give, that that is fully, that's fully accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that covenant or that agreement, which is connected to the future and to the past, is a fulfillment of the Passover and it points forward to a final feast. And then what does he say? <clears throat> I'm not going to drink any more wine until what? Until the next big party, right? I'm not going to drink any more wine. So he's at the Passover feast drinking probably his fifth glass of wine, if they were following the normal Jewish Haggadah, right? And um, he, 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 add, he adds a glass of wine to the feast, right? The fifth one. And he drinks it. And then he says, this, this is the last one. I mean, leave it to Jesus to end his ministry with a drinking, like a drinking metaphor, right? This is, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna have another beer till the next time we're together. 
right? Like that's basically what he, I mean, it's more sacred, it's not crass, but there are some, I mean, think about, think about people in the infantry and, you know, they fly into some place in Germany, one group of guys is going to Afghanistan, the other one's going to Iraq, they go out to the bar, you know, different levels of wastedness, but before they leave, they get that last round and they say, one of them goes, guys, which this would be big for an infantry guy probably, I'm not drinking another beer till we're coming back through Frankfurt on our way home. Godspeed. Right? That's nothing sinful about that. That's real. That's friendship. That's love. Right? And Jesus is here. He's, he, he raises his glass. He says, drink this. This is, my, this is my blood. This is me accomplishing what Passover was meant to be. And there's going to be a third party, a third feast, a third banquet that we're going to be at, which is going to be salvation completed. And the metaphor used in Revelation is of a marriage feast. It's the consummation of a new union, a new family, a new life, a new—and a new permanent and completely consummated union, right? And so what Jesus is saying is, you exist between the three feasts. There's a past feast that defines the, the framing or the nature of how God redeems us. He's given us a present feast— and he's promised us a future feast so that when we come to this one, you can't understand this one right without understanding this. It's, it's in the middle of two bookends. This feast points back to Passover and how God saves. This consummates that. And then there's a future one it's pointing forward to because this, what we're experiencing right now is not salvation in its fullness. Okay? This is not the end. This is not what we're hoping for. This is not as good as it gets. This isn't the end for which God created the world, okay? And so we can do all that, like, brokenness talk and stuff like that. That totally fits. As well as the triumphant talk of Jesus has saved, and he has given his spirit, and we are growing into a redeemed community. But we're not where we're going to be. It's going to be a lot better. There's going to be this final feast where all the brokenness is really gone forever. So, to think of communion as this ritual that we do monthly is to totally miss the fact that it is a ritual that Jesus ordained that forces us to do two things we have to do to persevere— to remember and to confess regularly that unites us with the three feasts, past, present, and future, so that our understanding of ourselves and our story can have flow, so that we can find the kind of wholeness in him that we need. One of the most deep and central human needs is fulfilled in this ritual— now, granted, we've, we've kind of stripped it down so it's not as cool. I mean, it's—the early church had a big party every time they did this. I don't know if you know this. You read any, any, any writing about this in the ancient church, and it'll say, the church got together, they had worship, there was some teaching, they sang a hymn, they, they, they got in each other's face and promised that they were going to live according to Jesus' standards, that they were going to obey Jesus. And then they had a big meal. <clears throat> and then at some point, somebody got up, took a piece of bread and broke it, took a glass of wine, and it was, it was a, it was a feast. 
And then at the, after eating together and being happy and having a couple glasses of wine and being laughing with some people, you know, and having merchants and slaves sitting at the same table drinking out of the same bottle of wine, somebody would get up and they'd break bread and they'd say, okay, we've all experienced the first fruits of the happiness of the final feast. Now I'm going to get up and I'm going to break the bread of affliction, which is the bread of Passover, the feast of the past. To remember, we were slaves. Do you remember that? We were slaves. We were afflicted. And we were broken. We needed help. And God, through Jesus, has given us his body and his blood, the the sacrifice of Passover, to bring us to this feast in promise of a final feast. And so understanding that we then come into God's story of past, present, and future, we can then begin to line up the meaning of our lives in terms of God's salvation story of the past coming into the present, how we have been either invited into it or have come up into it, that that begins to redefine our present and that sets our trajectory for who we're becoming in the future so that we can interact with our future. It gives flow. And friends, honestly, I think it's one of the only ways for human beings to have the kind of flow they need to live well in the present— in right relationship to both the past and the future, to have a true rootedness that defines who they are in the present and that sends them boldly instead of anxiously into the future. Because their main hope is to seek to become something and to live into this future kingdom that is going to happen, with or without them. Now, Therefore, what the Lord's Supper is, is a Jesus-ordained ritual of remembrance and confession of the gospel until he comes. Now, the reason I say ordained is because um, ordained is not a religious word. Ordained is a secular word. It means commanded. There is, like, for example, there are ordinances in the city of Madison, right? Speed limits and all kinds of stuff like that, right? Those are ordinances. They're rules you have to follow. So when we say that communion is an ordinance, what we're saying is not that it's not a sacrament. That's not the point of calling it ordinance. The point of calling it ordinance is Jesus told us to do it. So we need to do it. It's an act of obedience, right? So, so we need to do it. So understanding that it's a fundamental act of obedience, we also need to realize that it is a ritual, okay? You're going to have to make peace with the idea that though in the Protestant church we only have a couple rituals, um, except for the ones that we sort of made up, obviously, in our subculture, um, if we're going to connect with them, we're going to have to understand what a ritual is and how we were meant to connect with it and why, right? And I'll talk about that in just a minute. And that it is a ritual of remembrance and confession. That the two things we have to make sure we are really doing every time we do it is engaging in the inner psychological and spiritual disciplines of remembrance and confession. Okay? Now, what I want to do is answer the why question. Why do we need a ritual of remembrance and confession? Right? The Lord is very clear that his institution of the Passover feast originally and the Lord's Supper in the present is so that we would physically engage with our bodies and our mouths in remembering and confessing or professing a truth that we believe in. Right? In Exodus 12, 14, it says this. This day, meaning the first day when you 
when you do the sacrifice, shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep the feast of the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast, right? It's a, it's a, it's a remembrance. That's what a memorial is, right? And then in Exodus 12, 25, there are, there are specific commandments in Exodus when it was first given about what you need to say. That during the Passover meal, the youngest kid is supposed to turn to the oldest man and say, why do we do this? Whether he wants to ask it or not. The youngest kid turns to the oldest man and says, father of our whole family, why do we celebrate the Passover? And then God says, here's what you say. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt, and he struck the Egyptians, but, the ho- but spared our houses. That is, and it, and it widens out from there, that God saved our people from slavery. And we remember it every year, because that was the moment we went from being slaves to free. That was the moment we went from being a wandering shepherd class— that was a servant society to a greater culture, and we became the people of the promise. It was, it was that night. It was one night, and God did it. And it's our job to remember it, right? And then if you read in 1 Corinthians where um, communion is talked about, the Apostle Paul's writing, he says this. Jesus said, take, take, Oh, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you shall drink it. In what? In remembrance of me. And then what does Paul say? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what do you do? You proclaim, you confess, right? You speak out the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so quickly. Um, why do we need a ritual of remembrance and confession? Here's why. Um, he or, Jesus ordained a ritual of confession because we're ritual deniers. That's why. Remember last week, where does this come up? It comes up right in the chapter on betrayal, right? Ritual deniers need ritual confession. We need to train ourselves to say, I believe this out loud. Um, one of, one of the things I find the most annoying that preachers do is when they say to the congregation, okay, repeat after me. Right? Does that annoy you? I annoy, it annoys me to no end. Or when they say, okay, say this with me. Right? And you're kind of like, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything with you. Say whatever you want. I'm just going to sit here and act like I didn't hear you. You know? I mean, we, we find... We find resistance to be our default emotional moral value. Somebody says, say this with me, and we go, we go, I'm independent. I'm, I'm not part of the herd. I ain't saying that. Right? I mean, that's, it's a very, it's very visceral. It's very emotional, right? It's coming from a deep place of personal conviction. I'm not saying that. Right? And that's, it's pretty normal. And, so, and, and even in church, if I say, if I say this, I say, say this with me. I believe in Jesus. We still feel that way. And we're like, wait, I do believe in Jesus, but I still didn't want to say it. Because you told me to. You know? Because it's, it's, it's how we've been wired culturally. But what, the, what Jesus is telling us in the institution of communion is 
That is a misunderstanding of what it means to be a human being. Human beings need to confess. They need to confess regularly. They need to speak out what they believe. They need to act it out with their bodies because the thing you imitate is the thing you become. Whatever you imitate or whatever you enjoy, you will become. And so it is not even, it's not even phony to say, I believe something you only half believe. It's not, because what you're recognizing is you've come to an, a mental understanding of something and you have to overcome a deep-seated emotional predisposition that you've been building for years. And if you don't do something ritually with your body, you will never reconvince your emotions. It's never going to happen. You've got to do something bigger, more holistic, more complete. You've got to do it with your body. You've got to say it. It's got to come out of your mouth. You can't even assent to it. If you sit there and you're like, you know what, I sort of agree with what Nick's saying, and then you just walk out of here, you're never going to change. It's not going to happen. If you don't say, if you don't get up and be like, okay, I'm going I'm to tell my wife, I'm going to tell my friend, you know what, what he said today was right. It was right about me, and I'm going to do something about it. And here's what I'm going to do about it. If you don't say it, it has less, it has like a third of the impact. You can walk out here so convicted inside about something that was said or something you thought of or whatever. If you don't say it, nothing will happen. And if you don't do something with your body, it's just not going to take root. And look, shock, shocker, Jesus knows that. He knows that. And so he looks at us and he says, look, there's two things you're going to, you're, you're darn well going to do with your body. Okay? There are ordinances you're commanded to do them. They are non-negotiable. You are going to get baptized because you are going to stand up there and say, I believe in Jesus. I'm dying to an old life. I'm opening my life to a new one. I am not going to turn back. I am going in this direction and say whatever you want about me or my family or my upbringing or how I'm psychologically needy or the blah, blah, blah. I have, I've made a call and I'm going there, okay? I'm done with this. You are going to get baptized, okay? And two, you are going to eat a cracker and drink some juice and say, I believe in Jesus. <laughs> About monthly. And you should not shirk it. And you should not be like, well, I don't know if I'm worthy enough. No, no, no. No, no, no. The Bible does not say, it does not say, uh, unless you eat and you are worthy. It, it talks about eating in a worthy manner. That is, acknowledging you are coming to the gospel, not out of your own works. If you don't come because you don't think you're worthy enough, you don't even, you don't understand what's happening. You need it all the more. You need to get on up here, and you need to go ahead and take it, and realize that th that's just not even, that doesn't even enter in, okay? Now, I've only got like four minutes left, so we're going to have to keep rolling. Um, but I want to say this quickly about this idea of confession. The whole idea of confession itself emphasizes the gospel and emphasizes grace, doesn't it? Because confession isn't a work, is it? When you confess that Jesus has saved you, that he has died on your behalf, that he is the substitutionary sacrifice that takes away the guilt of your sin and unites you with God, when you say, I believe that, you're acknowledging that all you've ever done is accept news. You've never done any works. That's what you're acknowledging. You're saying, there, there was this news that I heard that I could believe or reject, and I believed it, and now I'm saying I believed it, and that's all there really is to it. I never earned it. I'm never going to earn it. I'm just, again, confessing, acknowledging that it's totally by Christ, totally by the cross, and totally by his favor, not my merit, 
that I can be delivered. And that's part of confessing. And it may be somewhere in the bowels down here that one of the reasons you don't want to confess is because you still are hoping to somehow put God in your debt and to earn it at some point someday. The, def- the default set- setting of the human heart is always to earn our salvation. It's always to do enough for God so that he couldn't ask anything from us. It's terrifying to know that the one who did anything, everything for us could ask anything of us. And we always want to control that and say, well, but I'm, I'm pretty darn good. I mean, God, re- I have kind of racked up a pretty, pretty good set of whatevers here now. And so uh, there ought to be a little bit of safety, at least out on the edges of what God could ask me to do. No, no, no. You come, you confess, you've done squat. He did everything. You're just saying Yes. And if you, don't, if you don't do it with your mouth and do it with your body and say it and act on it, it can't ever become who you are. It can't. And, you're, and see, all of us are busy doing all the cultural rituals in our culture. We're doing a lot of stuff with our bodies and our mouths and our hearts and our minds in our culture, aren't we? That are forming us. John, you were right. You were right. This isn't going to work, is it? Okay. Oh, gosh, I can't do it. Okay. Okay. Um, Second point will be on a video I'll put up tomorrow. Let me conclude this way. And it's important, so sorry. Um, In Joshua 5, there's this place where um, the Old Testament people of God, do you know why they imploded? They imploded because they didn't remember. A number of times in the Torah, God says, remember this, remember this, remember this. Do this ritual so you can remember this. Remember this, confess this, remember this. And they just didn't. They just didn't. You know what they remembered? Instead of, instead of disciplining themselves to remember what God did for them, they self, because they didn't do that, they just remembered whatever their selfish, sinful nature wanted to remember. So you know what they remembered? They remembered the fish and cucumbers they ate in Egypt and wanted to go back. Like, no kidding. They say that in numbers. They're like, you know, when we were in Egypt, there were fish and we had cucumbers. And I mean, just, you know, there was good hummus. I mean, it, it wasn't that bad. You know? That's what they remembered. You will always remember that if you don't discipline yourself to remember what God has done. Always. You will always self-justify your immediate desires by renegotiating your memory psychologically. And it's not a conscious experience. It is a semi and subconscious experience. So it just happens and then you just think that's what happened to you. That just becomes your memory. And then you just go, well, I can just totally do this because God hasn't been really good to me and I've had a hard life and whatever. And, and in, in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua realizes he's the new leader of this, all these kids that have grown up, and they haven't done any of the rituals. And he realizes they're about to fight people much stronger than them. He wants God to be with them. He's about to fight the city called Jericho that he doesn't have a prayer of beating. And he, he said, and he, here's what he does. He goes back to the two rituals. He goes back to the ritual of initiation, and he goes back to the ritual of remembrance. And so he gets all the men in Israel together, when they're close enough to get attacked by another army, and they get some flint stones, and they all cut off their foreskins. Because circumcision 
it was the initiating right into the people of God in the sign of the covenant. Could have been the death of all of them. But he said, I am not going to go and try to be the people of God without us all doing the initiating right of the covenant that we're in. And then, you know what he does the next day? He celebrates the Passover. The very next day, he says, okay, now, are you all, well, it's actually like four days later. Are you all feeling a little better? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> let's celebrate the Passover. And they do. They celebrate the Passover. And, um, and then, right after that, Joshua walks out and looks at the city he has to take. You know what happens? An angel appears with a sword in his hand, and he says, and, and Joshua's like, you know, he doesn't say this, but he's like, okay, I guess we're ready to go. That's interesting that he does those two, and that God has given us to in the New Testament, baptism and communion, so that we can remember, right? And um, so here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want, I want to encourage you to have a much higher view of, of communion and baptism than you may have had. They are not these leftover sort of given for other times and other periods of, of human life when people didn't have video and so on. These are fundamentally connected to your nature as a human being for your absolute psychological spiritual need of remembrance and confession, which is necessary for your true formation and your long-term perseverance, which scripture teaches is necessary for ultimate salvation. And I, I, okay, the irony is not lost on me that these are little plastic cups and little pieces of bread, and I'm saying that this is important. But that's the nature of a ritual. No ritual can ever be big enough to really feel like it's big enough for the truth it's trying to inhabit. You've got to bridge the gap. You have to use memory and discipline your memory to remember what God has done for you. Situate your story within that and see your future through it. And, and embrace that in the present. And this becomes a moment and a thing for you to do so you can remember and confess. So as the ushers come forward to help us, we're going to do this. Okay, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I want you to know just one last thing as they come. Um, God said to Moses in Exodus 12, he said, listen, any foreigner can be part of this. Any Egyptian could have been part of the first Passover. Did you know that? Any Egyptian who wanted to be could have been part of the first Passover. So if you don't believe in Jesus, let me just tell you, from the very first Passover, God said, anybody who wants to be part of this can be. It just requires faith. They've just got to come to the feast. They've got to come and believe. You can believe right now. You can just walk in on the feast and be part of it. And that be your first act of faith. That can be your act of converting faith. You can say, I believe in Jesus. He died for me. I did nothing. I'm confessing that he did it for me, and I'm committing to remember what he did. And, and one of the first steps you'll have to do then is you'll walk right there in the library and realize that one of the first steps of initiation is you need to get baptized, right? But you can be part of this right now. God said explicitly, any foreigner can just come in. Let me pray. Father, as we come to the table right now, we, um, we pray that you would help us to experience a deepening effect of the gospel in our lives as we try to confess and remember what you have done. 
Help us to see the span of the three feasts. Help us to see this as uniting past and future and situating us exactly in this moment of the present. And help us um, to remember how great Christ is, how much he saved us from, how we were eating bitter herbs and the bread of affliction before you deliver us with the sweet meat of the Passover lamb. And that, and that we, just like those first people who had to have a staff on their hand and sandals on their feet and belt tucked in so that they were ready to move, Father, help us to be ready to go where you want us to go. To, you, that you, you have saved us to take us somewhere. Father, help us to have that mentality and that idea. God, so as we come, would you make us capable of doing this ritual with these simple items in a way that causes us to remember and confess the way we need to. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.